Well, good evening, or good morning, or whatever it is. I don't know. What it, I'm all confused today. I had one of those mornings where uh, nothing was going right, uh, but I'm really glad to see everybody. You good here? You glad to be here? Why does my wife have a baby in her arms? <laughs> is, is that a message? No? Yes, no? Maybe so? Uh, in the hustle and bustle of everything this morning, I did not pull up my message yet, so give me just a second. Hey, uh, while I get there, why don't you go ahead and open up whatever copy of the Scriptures you have to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Um, and whether you are with us in person or online, uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you who, um, you know, whether you're someone who has committed your life to Jesus, whether you've submitted your life to Jesus as Master, Savior, or maybe you're someone who hasn't decided whether you believe everything you've heard about Jesus and the Bible. Um, you know, I think these next few weeks, as, you know, last week we started our new Christmas series entitled Good News. I really think that this is a great series for us, and it can be incredibly helpful. And that seems, sounds kind of self-serving, even as I think about it, like, come listen to me. I can help you. <laughs> no, not really. Um, but as we look at the Scripture, I think it could be really, really helpful for us to be reminded of the good news of Jesus. And I hope I do a good job of making it at least uh, not boring. But if anything, what I plan to do over the next few weeks is take a look at the Scripture. And maybe it seems blasé to say, I'm going to take a look at some of the stuff that you haven't seen before, normally during Christmas, but that's actually what we're going to be doing. And so some of you are going to be looking at Mark chapter 1 and going, this is not a Christmas passage. I said, yeah, I know, but it has the gospel in it. And the gospel is what we want to look at this week. And so, um, and so last week we talked about the reality that both you and I know that what we set our sights on is often what we end up finding, right? Remember how we talked about that? What you set your sights on is often what you end up finding. And it's this truth that we all understand that sets up what we said was going to be the heart of this series. And really, it's this challenge. If you want to have good news, you need to set your sights on good news. Like, if you want to live with good news in the everyday rhythms of your life, if you want to have the gospel influence not only your attitude, but want it to influence the direction of your life, well, then you have to set your sights on the good news. There's just no getting away around that. It's not like the good news will all of a sudden plop into your brain as, as if though you, you weren't looking for it in the moment of need. Now, there are times that, that does happen. I will say that. Scripture tells us that the you know, hidden your word in my heart that I might sin against thee. But often, and you know this if you've been around long enough, if you're not looking for the opportunity to think about your life in terms of the gospel and through the metric of the gospel, then you are very often not going to think of it in that way. And so, if you want to have the good news, you need to set your sights on the good news. Now, the Christmas season means a lot of things to a lot of different people. Some people love the smell of Christmas dinners. Who I mean, like the smell of Christmas dinners? Yeah, okay, just one person. Okay, you and me, we just love the smell of food. Let's just be honest, especially if it's good-smelling food. Uh, some people love lights and decorations. They love that kind of stuff. They love going and seeing that. Some people love Christmas music. How many of you love Christmas music? Yep, and the other half do not, right? And some of you love Christmas music at Christmas, all right? Let's keep it where it is. Uh, and some of you love it 
24-7, starting literally the day after Thanksgiving, right? Now, uh, all this week, my kids have had this song stuck in their head, and, um, and now they're going to hate me because they're going to be like, we just finally got it out of our head. But it's a song uh, called Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Anyone ever heard that song? Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Something, something, party hop or something like that. And, and, <laughs> and no lie, no lie, no lie. Seriously, during dinner, during dinner this week, we actually literally all broke into song, singing it like it was some stupid, like, musical. All of us, I mean, if you were there, you were like, eating dinner, all of a sudden, family breaks into song. We're all going, rocking around the Christmas tree. And I don't know lyrics to songs, so I'm just going, rocking around Christmas. My kids are looking like, you don't know the lyrics to the song? I'm like, I don't listen to lyrics. <laughs> but like, that's what we were doing. I love Christmas music. Now, just out of curiosity, I did a Google search this week um, of the most annoying Christmas songs ever, because literally that song has been stuck in our head all week. That and the Mandalorian theme song. But that's a whole different story. All right, so anyways, but just out of curiosity, does anyone know what like some of the most annoying Christmas songs are? Christmas, that's actually number one, Christmas shoes. Grandma got ran over by a reindeer. Like, first of all, that's just terrible. Why would you want to sing a song about your grandparents getting run over by reindeers? That's just wrong, right? All the grandparents say, amen. Santa Baby, that's another song that I always just thought was weird. Santa Baby. So now that song's stuck in your head. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I love, one of the things I love about Christmas is actually music. And what I love is, is what maybe is traditionally called like good old-fashioned Christmas carols, Christmas hymns. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And one of the songs that I've always loved is, is one that dates back actually to 1865. And in, in fact, it was a song that uh, would be sung almost every week in the church that I grew up in, kids' church. Uh, the church I grew up had a kids' church. And, uh, and it went kind of like this. And if you, if you know it, you can feel free to sing it with me. But it went, it went kind of like this. It goes, <clears throat> Go tell it on the mound. Ten, right? It goes over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that what? Jesus Christ is born, right? And so I love that song. I, I, I love it. Um, uh, maybe it's because it's a little gospel in it or uh, just because it just reminds me of my childhood. But, uh, you know, what I love about this song is it talks a lot about what I want to talk about today, which is this idea that when news is good, it needs to be heard. Like, when news is good, it needs to be heard. In fact, I would make the point that good news requires itself to be heard. And among all the things in the history of mankind that could be considered good news, the good news of Jesus is without equal, and I would be as bold to say as on the literal top of the list of what things could be considered good news. This is why a guy by the name of Mark, and last week we took a little, little look at his, his story, and, uh, and that's kind of what's inspiring a lot of what this series is about, taking a look at Mark and how he explains the gospel. And so this week we're looking at Mark 1, and this is, this is the reason why Mark starts his account of the life of Jesus, which is different than Matthew and Luke, than what we're kind of, of, of 
familiar with, right? Familiar with the accounts of, of Jesus. And so it says this in Mark 1, 1. It says this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, at first glance, it might not seem like much, okay? But when you read the scholarly work of the interpretation of this passage of Scripture, you'll find some really impressive stuff. First of all, Mark kind of tips his hat to uh, where else in the Scripture is a very, very popular in the beginning. This is the beginning. Where else is that? Does anybody else know? Yeah, Genesis 1-1. And so, as we know, all of Scripture in it is contained the gospel. And so, what Mark is kind of doing here, it's kind of really cool thing that he's doing. He's, he's basically tipping his hat to the beginning of what is the Hebrew Scriptures at that time and saying, look, here is, it's not a new one, but here is this, this new way of seeing the reality of the gospel as now told through the life of Jesus. And of all the things that all the scholars say, they, they say that the good news of Jesus could be seen uh, you know, the gospel of Jesus could be seen as either A, the gospel that Jesus preached, or it could be seen as the gospel which Jesus Christ is the subject of. Now, most of all, uh, most, uh, if, if really not all, agree that Mark was making the statement that Jesus is actually the good news that, it, that, that Mark was talking about. So, literally, when it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you could maybe translate it in a way that is in our vernacular, our way of saying thing, hey, the beginning, in the beginning, this is the beginning of the gospel, which is, by the way, Jesus. But there's something more interesting that Mark does not do that other gospels, such as Matthew and Luke, do, as, as you know. Uh, while Matthew and Luke include the birth of Jesus as their retelling of the life and teaching of Jesus, Mark does not. In fact, uh, one Bible scholar that comments on this narrative says this, he says, he says that uh, the, the, the nativity narratives were of no use for Mark's purpose. I'm just reading here, by the way. He said he had no interest in writing a biography. His concerns were to highlight the saving facts and their theological meaning. What does this mean? In other words, if good news is to be heard, Mark wanted us to know that the good news of the gospel must be first told. And so, then the question is, what does the gospel, the good news of Jesus, look like? Well, Mark tells us by writing this, and he says this in verse 2. Read this along with me. It says this, as it is written in, the, uh, in, in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, let's just pause real quick um, for everyone who is an Old Testament scholar in here. You're going to be like, oh, that, that's so good. Yeah. Now, for all the rest of us, we're like, okay, that sounds really good. Sounds like Morpheus talking to Neo. Uh, you know, just some like just really out there stuff like, all right, and the voice calling one and the mom and this and this will come and prepare the way. But we have to understand is that what he's doing, Mark quotes from both the records of, of, of the ministry of a guy named Malachi and Isaiah who were prophets hundreds of years before all of this happened. And, 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 it was, and, they, and this was recorded in what the, the Jews called the Scripture, the, 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 the major prophets, and they referred to, uh, and, and really the prophets, uh, if that kind of trips you out, they're just really people who spoke on behalf of God. 
And we know from these messengers of God that God promised that a child would be, would be born and that a son would be given and that He would save His people from their sins. This is what we know. And so the good news of Christmas is not simply that Jesus was born as a baby, seven pounds, eight ounce, wrapped in golden fleece, Jesus, right? Oh, Ricky Bobby, some of you know. Uh, so he grew up, right? He became a man. But what we know about Jesus is not just about the birth, but that Jesus was a fulfillment of God's promise. And this is really, this is really, really um, What's the, what's the word I'm even thinking? Like, this is, if, if there's anything you need to, to get from the idea of the narrative of the Scripture regarding Jesus' birth, is this, that Jesus, the gospel, the gospel is rooted in promise. That the gospel is rooted in promise. And that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise to rescue and restore the people uh, of, of, of God from a life of sin. Now, the good news of Jesus tells us that he came to save. The question, though, is do you want to be saved? Like, do you want to be saved? If the, if the good news is about Jesus coming to save a people, this is just a helpful question to ask yourself. Like, do you want to be saved? Like, did you wake up this morning going, I am so glad, God, that you have saved me? And I want to be saved by you. I think some of us who wonder whether or not our relationship with Jesus is real, we struggle to understand from an emotional standpoint as if though a relationship with Jesus was purely emotional. But what do you call relationships that are purely emotional anyways, right? We struggle, maybe not because Jesus doesn't show up, but because at the core of who we are, we really... <laughs> don't want to be saved, or we don't actually recognize that we need to. Mark tells us that John the Baptist was placed on this earth and for the purpose of preparing the way from the Lord. He starts with John the Baptist. It's weird. Here's the gospel of Jesus. <laughs> John the Baptist. Where are you going with this? Well, hold on. Mark tells about John the Baptist, and he talks about him preparing the way for the Lord, and here's how he did it. And if we listen closely, we can catch a glimpse of what it means to prepare the way of the Lord in our own lives. And you have to understand, the disciples of Jesus were very keen on this idea that a believer's life was meant to live as someone who proclaims the gospel of Jesus. Somehow we got lost somewhere that primarily the gospel was just about the embitterment of our own lives so we could do what we want to do. But the people of God, in the pursuit of God's mission, have always done the things that they were gifted and did their jobs and stuff, but they never, ever forgot that we were always called on the mission. And so he starts off with the thing that makes sense to everyone in the early church. And so when Mark goes, here's the gospel of Jesus, it starts with one of the greatest examples of one who prepared the way of the Lord. Oh, we get that, Mark, because we're doing that too. <laughs> and that's what he says. He says that John is this guy who prepares the way of the Lord and, and creates a picture now for you and me that we can prepare the way of the Lord, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those within our circles of influence. And so this is what he says in Mark 
chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, he goes like this. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is crazy. And what, what's even crazier is, uh, look at this. John wore skinny jeans, tight shirts, and goofy glasses but, and tats on his arms, right? No. No, I'm just teasing. I'm, I'm picking. I'm, I have a lot of pastor friends who like skinny jeans and have tattoos and whatever. I'm not judging them. But John wore camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. Okay, so there was... <laughs> uh, the only way I can think of saying is this, and maybe I'll delete it later in the podcast, but like, there was nothing like sexy about the ministry of John, right? No, I mean, he wasn't like, they're like, oh, oh my goodness, John, he's so cool. I want to be like John. Like, no. You don't want to be like John. He ate bugs. Okay? And then it was all over his hands because how do you eat honey and bugs? And not, Okay, it's just nasty. And if it was John, he probably had a beard and something was like stuck in his beard. I mean, just like, what is that? Is that, is, is that a twig? Oh, no, that's, that's a locust leg. All right. Just threw it in my mouth a little bit. Thank you, John. And so here is this guy. And he says this. He proclaimed... One who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, if the good news of Jesus is rooted in a promise, right? We talked about this idea of a promise. Then, then the good news is received through repentance and humility. Good news is received through repentance and humility. Well, where are you getting that, Phil? Well, listen, here's the truth that you'll see when you read the red-colored words of Jesus in the Scripture. The reason why Jesus had come wasn't just so that we can feel thankful that He was born one month out of the year. Oh, Jesus, yay. Jesus had come because we are sinners who need to embrace repentance. That's not me trying to be, like, judgmental or hard on anybody. It's just a fact. I mean, come on. Who here is not someone who has broken God's standards? And what does that make us? Sinners in need of repentance. And if you've been around Clarity for a while, you've heard me say this before, that repentance, according to the Scriptures, can be described in the simple imagery of what, right? Of, of doing what? Turning. Like, if you want to know what repentance means, it's just simply this. It's simply this. Woo! Turning, looking from one thing and saying, no, I'm now turning another direction. I'm focusing my energies on another. So, just, if you ever wondered what repentance means, it just means this. Yeah. Ah. Ooh. Ah, that's repentance, okay? One pastor writes this, and he says this. I, I like how he says it because, you know, this is a good illustration, but if you want eloquent words, I have to read it from someone else. He says this, repentance is turning away from a wrong view or definition of God or from a person or a thing that you have looked at as God 
and turning to the true God and the truth about God as revealed in Jesus. Repentance happens when we are ignorant about an aspect of God's character or being, and the Spirit brings illumination to our hearts, leading us to know Him in a new way. It also takes place when the Spirit reveals our unbelief about God and leads us to believe a particular truth about God. And lastly, it takes place when the Spirit convicts us that we have been willfully rebelling against God, leading us to desire obedience to God in a particular area of our lives. Now, I don't know if anyone in here has ever rebelled against your parents, has ever thought of rebelling against their parents, have ever said in their mind, my parents are crazy. Then that makes all of us now. (laughs) I just kind of put everyone in that little thing. So that's not necessarily rebelling against your parents, saying that they're crazy. But if you have ever done anything that has strained the relationship with your parents, you know what it's like to be in a conflict with someone that is also simultaneously your parent, your family. 22 years ago, I was home for Christmas. I was, uh, <laughs> I was a freshman in college. I just finished my first semester of Bible college, and I was smart. I was so smart. I, I was so smart. I'd, I'd already had Bible classes. I'd just finished Systematic Theology 1, and oh my goodness, I learned so much that I wanted my dad and my family to know. Like, I was just so smart. Anyone, anyone ever know anyone like that? Yeah, you call them jerks. Um, so I came home, and uh, to make a long story short, because I don't want to glorify that moment, but in a moment of really pride and anger, I said things to my dad that Christmas of 1998 that put a huge strain between my dad and I. Like, in fact, it was so bad that my father told me that if I wanted to make these kind of decisions, if I wanted to talk to him in this way and act towards him in this way, uh, he kind of drew a line in the sand and he said, then you can go ahead and make decisions on your own, but not as a part of this family. Now, I know, that's super Asian dad of him to do. I disown you. Oh, that's not the way he talks, but anyways. But yeah, I, I messed up. And that wasn't even the craziest part. The craziest part was that I had the audacity. <laughs> this is what's crazy. I look back now and it's funny, sort of. I had the audacity to be mad at my dad for also drawing a line in the sand regarding my defiant decision to be disrespectful to him without regret. Like I was mad at him and I seethed for eight months. Oh, I can't believe him. Can't believe him. Draw a line in the sand. He cut me off. I tried to call my sister once and she's like, I can't talk to you. Like, Dad says, I can't talk to you. I'm like, stupid. Well, what is this? Karate kid? Oh, disown you from the family. Oh. What is this? Now, eventually, my story was a happy one because even though I held bitterness in my heart towards my dad for eight months, 
I would find out years later from my dad um, that my dad, those whole eight months, and as a father now, I totally get it. <laughs> as, as a kid, I, I, I didn't understand how much my dad loves me, even in the moments where it seemed like he didn't. But I found out years later that my dad would tell me during those eight months, it was the hardest, some of the hardest times of his life. And it tore him up. And eventually our relationship was restored, but it wasn't because I came to my senses. It was because I decided to go visit my sister for her birthday. And I told her I was coming and told her not to tell mom and dad, but, you know, <laughs> what do you think happened? Yeah, she told mom and dad. Um, and the relationship was restored because as I came off the terminal gate, it came, off, came out that gate door. This is back before 9-11 and your family could wait for you at the literal gate. Some of you don't even know what that's about, but it came out, came out the little tunnel and there was my dad standing there uh, with tears in his eyes. And all the bitterness, all the anger. You know what's funny is I saw the tears in his eyes. And you know, you know what the first thing I said to him was? Well, no, not high. But that, that probably would have been good. I, the first thing I said you have to understand, the whole way there, I was thinking of like how I'm going to ignore my dad if I happen to meet him and I'm still mad at him. Like, you know the first thing I said to my dad was? When I finally looked at his face and I saw the tears in his eyes and I could see, I wouldn't have called it at the time, but in retrospect, I would have called it this, mercy, grace, and love. You know what I said to my dad? I said, I'm so sorry. And even, it was almost effortless. And then I started, I'm actually going to cry right now. Um, <laughs> and I began crying. And there in the middle of an airport, a uh, 17-year-old kid was hugging his dad. Crying and they're crying. So why do I t give you that story? Just because a relationship is strained, it doesn't mean that the relationship covenant is broken. Just because a relationship is strained doesn't mean that a, a covenant relationship is broken. Just because Leona and I get into an argument doesn't mean that the covenant we made to love each other for better or for worse is broken. And a relationship that has been strained is a relationship that needs to be restored. Listen, a relationship that's strained is a relationship that needs to be restored. Some of you, I'm particularly talking about between us and our Heavenly Father, but I'm just going to be well aware and recognize that for some of you, this literally means some earthly relationships. And maybe today, the takeaway is that the good news is begging you to live in the same way that your Heavenly Father has lived towards you. He who was no sin, was made sin. And even while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Maybe that's the takeaway. But a relationship that has been strained is a relationship that needs to be restored. And this is why repentance is the doorway for living a life that is transformed by the gospel. 
And so choosing to embrace, embrace repentance, though it, 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 takes, it takes a lot of guts. It takes a thing called humility, right? This is why we say the good news is received through repentance and humility. They kind of go hand in hand. Because what do you call someone who comes up to you after they've done something wrong and you're like, apologize, and they say it like this, I'm sorry. What do you call that person? That's not repentant. But there's another kind of person who looks at you straight in the eyes and slowly and deliberately says, I am sorry. That's repentance. That's humility. So the question isn't this. It isn't, how good am I doing in this life? The question isn't, how good am I doing? The question that a life centered on the gospel asks is this. It's a better one. What needs to be submitted even more? Like, like what aspect of my everyday choices actually needs to be submitted more to God, His will, His way? Maybe just a little more. It's not how good am I doing. It's how much more do I need to be submitted? John the Baptist, who was, by the way, a relative of Jesus, <laughs> if you didn't know that, referred to Jesus as the one who is more powerful than I. And all, and then, and really on top of that, he said this, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the straps of his sandal. Yes, I might have helped change his diaper when he was a kid, maybe babysat him, but I'm not even now worthy to unstrap his sandals. In John, the disciple of Jesus' gospel, he records a conversation John the Baptist was having with one of his disciples who was feeling a little jealous because Jesus' following was getting bigger. And you know, you know what happened? You know what John said when one of his disciples leaned over and said, hey, look, Jesus' Jesus's, Jesus's following is getting a little bigger. You know, you, know, you, know what, you know what John the Baptist said? I'll tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, well, yeah, that's because that's Jesus, he's that seeker-sensitive guy, you know, <laughs> eating with sinners, doing that kind of stuff. Of course, he's going to get a crowd. You know what he didn't say? He didn't say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he's all into them signs and wonders, but, you know, we keep to the Torah around here. You know what? John didn't say, he didn't say, oh yeah, that Jesus, he's all into that flash and that show. I mean, <laughs> making wine out of water. I heard he even walked on water once. <laughs> what a show off. Here's what John did say. In John 3.30, he said, <clears throat> hey, thanks for telling me. By the way, Jesus... He must become greater. And I must become less and less. If there's anything that both the Christmas narrative and the whole narrative of the gospel of Jesus communicates, it's this picture, humility. It takes humility to come to grips with your sin and embrace repentance. I like what one Christian author wrote he says this, if you are not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and will slack off in your pursuit 
of holiness. To preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith and His shed blood and His righteous life. It means you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God and that He is your propitiation and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. Preaching the gospel to yourself to proclaim the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection over your life so you are brought to repentance is something all who desire to follow Jesus need to do. This is the Christmas story, but this requires humility. This is the reason why Jesus came. Celebrating Jesus' birth is wonderful and can be a very meaningful thing if we remember why Jesus came. He came so that you and I could embrace His gospel with repentance and with humility.